All right, good morning. My name is Ryan Ventura, and if I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you yet, I direct our student ministries here at Horizon. Um, and today I have the honor to introduce our guest speaker, and his name is Ben Corson. And uh, Ben was with us several months ago, back in April. And uh, Ben is the founder of Hope Generation. He has a global TV and radio show. He's the author of three books. Um, he's a nationally renowned speaker who, who travels every week to speak, and he's based out of Applegate Christian Fellowship Church. I found Ben to have a humorous style. He's uplifting. He's energetic. He's hope-filled, but he also really has a love for Scripture. So I think we're really going to enjoy hearing from him today. So give a warm horizon welcome to Ben Corson. Thank you, my friend. Love you. Good morning, everybody. So good to see you. Everywhere I travel, I like to uh, show people where I am. So uh, my team, Hope Generation, helps me run my Instagram. Would you guys all say hi to my Insta on the count of three? One, two, three. Love you guys. You guys look so beautiful this morning. Awesome. Um, I had so much fun when I was here a couple months ago, and I'm super excited to be involved in this church because right after uh, I got home, I started sharing with my home church what a special place this is. I mean, it's not often that you get to go to a place that amalgamates Hogwarts Castle with High King Peter Narnia Palace with Oxford Intelligence. And uh, it's really, really cool for me to be here. It's a great experience for me. So thank you. I've been asked to speak this morning out of Luke chapter 9. If you have your Bible, you can turn there with me or just listen along. Um, And we're going to talk about the idea of how to prioritize. Now, first and foremost, when it comes to prioritizing, I think of Sherlock Holmes. Not the movies, not the TV show. I'm talking about the original novel, Study in Scarlet. Sherlock Holmes was such a beloved character in Victorian England, created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, that when Doyle killed off Sherlock in one of his stories at the Rickenbach Falls when he was fighting with Mariardi, all of Victorian England rose up in protest against this decision. All of England was ticked off that he, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, would kill off his main character. So sure enough, one day, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was walking down the street and a stranger full-on beat him up because he killed Sherlock Holmes. His own mother wrote to him, how dare you kill that lovely Mr. Holmes? So when all of England demanded that he bring Sherlock back, he did this alibi and tried to, as best as he could through a a mix of science and magic, bring him back from the dead. But there's this line in Sherlock that really sticks out to me that really affected me personally. And it's when Sherlock first meets Dr. Watson in this 1800s novel. Watson's amazed by his gargantuan intelligence and his amazing wit and riposte and depth of knowledge. But he was, he was flabbergasted to find that Sherlock didn't know that the earth revolved around the sun. And Watson was amazed. He's like, how do you know all these amazing facts about, you know, criminology and how do you have such depth of knowledge? You're a genius and not know that the earth revolves around the sun. And Sherlock replied, the mind is like an attic. If you fill it with rubbish, it's harder to get at the useful stuff. And if I fill my mind with facts about astrophysics, it's more difficult for me to get to the stuff that will help me actually solve crimes. And knowing that the earth revolves around the sun, 
will not help me solve any crimes. So because the mind is like an attic, it's not elastic, I can only fill it with a certain amount of information. I'm not going to fill it with rubbish, lest it becomes harder to get at the useful stuff. We have to be very intentional, very careful about what we put into our minds. Because the truth is, your mind is a precious commodity. Your cranial package, your psychological constitution, your cerebral gray matter, the three-pound brain between your skull is a very, very important and potent force. Did you know your brain contains 2.5 million gigabytes worth of information, 300 years worth of TV watching, 3 million years worth of space? You have about 100 billion neurons. Uh, we only know about 2 to 8% of how the brain works. But what we have found is quite fascinating. We'll delve into this a little bit. But neuroplasticity tells us that we can actually shape, transmogrify, alter, and change the way our neural pathways and the grooves, grooves in our mind run. Uh, as a matter of fact, one of my favorite authors once said, if you are wondering why there are no more C.S. Lewis's in the world, no more stories as great as Tolkien's, no cathedrals as great as the Gothic's, no music as moving as Pachelbel's, it may be because the writers of these books, the tellers of these stories, the architects of these buildings, and the composers of these symphonies are all sitting on their couches watching television. <laughs> I love that quote. The average adult watches four hours and 35 minutes of TV every day, according to one report. Another study says the average American watches five to seven hours of TV every day. That's median. The average eight to 18 year old, according to a study that came out a few years back, spends seven hours and 38 minutes every day indulging in media entertainment, social media, video games, and browsing the web. That's a full work week plus 13 hours overtime <laughs> spent playing video games and watching TV. And so my point that I'm trying to make is sometimes I think we fill our minds with a lot of useless rubbish that makes it more difficult for us to get at the more important stuff. That's why the Bible is always talking about how we think. In Psalm chapter 1, we're told to meditate day and night on the law of God, that we might be like trees planted by rivers of water. Now, I know the word meditation is very in vogue among hipster cities for Gen Y and Gen Z, very taboo for like provincial churches. But the word meditation is actually a, a biblical idea. It's juxtaposed against Eastern meditation. Eastern meditation is about emptying your mind. It's about a placidity of negativism and nothingness, an abyss, a nirvana of, of flatline. But Hebrew meditation, on the contrary, conversely, is about filling your mind. That's why uh, Joshua 1 says, if you meditate on the law of God, you'll have good success. Psalm 1, if you meditate on the law of God, you will bring forth fruit in your season. Philippians 4.8 Meditate on whatever is true, noble, lovely, just, pure, virtuous, and praiseworthy. So meditation, I will meditate on your works, the psalmist said of the Lord. So the Bible talks about meditation. Again, speaking of your mind, Isaiah 26.3 says, You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. Jeremiah 29.11, God says, I know the thoughts I think toward you, thoughts of peace, and not of evil to give you a future and a hope. Jesus said, take no thought 
for tomorrow. The word thought in Greek is merimnan. It means anxious worry. Take no anxious, worrisome, careful thought of the morrow, he said. Again, the Bible says, according to Paul, take your thoughts captive. I love that one. Sometimes my mind wanders and it never comes back. (laughs) He says, take your thoughts captive. Again, Paul says, put your thoughts on things above and not on things below. The Bible is consistently teaching us to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, Romans chapter 12 says. In fact, the very first message of Jesus during his public ministry was repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Now that word repent is one of the most misunderstood concepts in the Bible. Uh, The word repent in Greek is the word metanoia. Would everybody please say metanoia? Meta means to metamorphosize. That's where we get our word metamorphosis, like a caterpillar turning into a butterfly. Noia means thinking. So metanoia means to change or metamorphosize the way that you're thinking. Jesus said, metanoia, repent, change the way you think. The kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, I'm not just dying on a cross to get you off this rock into heaven. I died on a cross to get heaven into you while you're on this rock on the way to eternity. On earth as it is in heaven, may your kingdom come. So change the way you think because the kingdom is among you. The kingdom is within you. The kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world. As you are of this world, but in this world, but not of this world, your kingdom come to earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus told us, change the way you think. As Luke 15 says, the father told the elder brother of the prodigal son, everything I have is already yours. The psalmist said, the earth he has given to the sons of men. In Genesis, man was told to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. Which, by the way, is why Adam named the animals. In ancient Hebrew culture, to name something meant you owned it. So when God told Adam, Adam means man, to name the animals, that was a powerful metaphor for man owning and having dominion over the earth. To be good stewards of this thing. And Jesus said, change the way you think. All of my kingdom is yours. Fear not, little flock. It is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. So this needs to be the priority, the useful and right stuff that you fill your brain with, lest the rubbish get in the way and keep you from advancing my empire of hope, my kingdom in this generation. Powerful stuff that Jesus teaches us. So change the way you think. Why is it so important that we change the way that we think? Because, my friends, the thoughts that you think become the words that you say. The words that you say become the action of the day. The action of the day becomes the habit of our life, and the habit of our life becomes our lifestyle. Because if you sow a thought, you will reap an action. If you sow an action, you will reap a habit. If you sow a habit, you will reap a character. And if you sow a character, you will reap a destiny. Your destiny traces its origins back to the genesis of the thoughts that you think. We have neurologically between 30,000 to 50,000 thoughts every day. When's the last time you took time to think about what you're thinking about? (laughs) Outlook determines outcome. So if your outlook gets bleak, try to uplook. Because if you change the way you look at things, things will change the way they look. The problem is not the problem. The problem is my perception about the problem and my hopelessness about a problem is a bigger problem than my problem. 
My problem's too big for me. It's just the right size for God. But my praise will be a problem for my problems. So I'm not going to look down and get distressed. I'm not going to look around and get stressed. I'm not going to look inside and get depressed. I'm going to look up and get blessed because Jesus rose so I could rise. My outlook is going to be an uplook. Come on. That's the way that we need to think. Putting our thoughts on things above. God said, my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You got you to gotta raise up your thought life to a higher level. The book of Proverbs says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. What does that mean? Your identity is inextricably intertwined with your thought life. As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Now, for me, the thing that I prioritize in my thinking is hope. <laughs> I am really passionate about hope. Hope is the one string upon which I harp. Uh, hope is so important to me because I went through chronic depression for 10 years. So much so that I remember a few years ago, I went into the kitchen to take up a knife to kill myself. And chronic depression had me beat for 10 years. And when God finally delivered me a couple years ago, and he restored my joy, and he showed me that fun is fundamental. <laughs> He put the fun back in funeral. I realized (laughs) that hope was the priority that I needed to really capitalize on because our generation is the number one most depressed generation in recorded history. That's what the research has now shown us. Is that Gen Z, Gen Y, Millennials, Centennials, we are now the number one most depressed generation in recorded history. We live better than kings used to live. We live in a nation built on life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, yet we're stressed, depressed, distressed, and in debt trillions of dollars to China. And we're so depressed now that when we see these heartbreaking, heart-wrenching tragedies that I personally really empathize with on the media, like Kate Spade, you know, this fashion icon, and Anthony Bourdain, amazing chef and TV personality, killing themselves. The national media puffed this and made a big deal out of it, as they should have. But the truth of the matter is what people fail to realize is that we documented two major suicides in the past couple months, but there are 123 suicides per day in America. Uh, USA Today now reported that this constitutes and is warranted as a national crisis. The suicide rate has increased by 25% nationally. So when I went through my weakness of depression... And God healed my broken heart because the Bible actually invented the phrase of broken heart. I don't know if you know that, but the phrase of broken heart was first used in ancient biblical Hebrew literature by the Bible. And the fact of the matter is, when I went through this depression, God healed me, God restored my joy. I suddenly was able to empathize with my generation that is so depressed, and that's what caused me to start Hope Generation to travel all around giving our generation hope. And then I realized what Paul said is true. His grace is sufficient for me. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. Therefore, I will rejoice in distresses, necessities, persecutions, and afflictions for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then am I strong. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 10. So in my thinking, I prioritize hope because my greatest weakness, depression, has now become my greatest strength, hope. Because it's no longer hear my theories, it's touch my wounds. It's not I'm hypothetically dealing with how to handle the depression running rampant and pervading our generation, but I can say I've been there. I can empathize and sympathize with where you've been. And that's what the word sympathy means. 
Sympathy comes from two Greek words, syn, S-Y-N, pashin. S-Y-N means together with, like the band from the 90s, NSYNC, together with. And pashin is where we get the word passion of the Christ, which means to suffer. So sin pashin means to suffer in sync with other people. And Hebrews says that Jesus is our great high priest who can suffer in sync with us and be touched with our infirmities. And so to our weaknesses, we can now employ and deploy to help other people. So as Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, we can comfort others with the very comfort wherewith we've been consoled by the God of consolation. And this is the amazing thing before we dive into our text. And actually, guys, would you mind moving that screen so I can see how much time I have? I just want to make sure I don't go over because I went over yesterday. But this is the interesting thing. (laughs) Um, In the scripture, we see that the weaknesses that biblical characters went through also became their greatest strengths. Let me share with you an example. In the Bible, there are three left-handed people. Okay, follow me. We're going somewhere with this. In the Bible, there are three left-handed people, three southpaws. Now, to be left-handed in that culture, in ancient Old Testament biblical times, was considered a curse. If you were left-handed, you were cursed. Now, today, being left-handed is good because it gives you an advantage in sports because you have an unorthodox approach. But back in that time period, it was a curse to be left-handed. Three left-handed people mentioned in the Bible. All three of them hail from, come from, the tribe of Benjamin. The name Benjamin means son of my right hand. (laughs) So all the lefties, all the southpaws come from the right-handed tribe. One of those southpaws was named Ehud. Ehud was a left-handed man who went on a DEFCON 1, Navy SEAL Team 6, military assassination mission to wipe out and extirpate King Eglon, the wicked ruler of the Moabites who was oppressing the Israelites, to topple him from his throne. Now the Bible says that Eglon, this is in the book of Judges, and I quote, was a very fat man. Now when the Bible says thy word is truth, if the scriptures say he was a very fat man, we're not talking about somebody who needed to lose a few pounds. We're talking about a guy who was shaped like an egg. We're talking about Eglon being Jabba the Hutt, planetary. He has his own zip code. You know, delicious on the lips, malicious on the hips. If we weren't meant to have midnight snacks, why is there a light in the fridge? You know. (laughs) This guy was was gargantuan, Jabba the Hutt vibes. The body is a temple, but sometimes we add additions. Anyways, Eglon... (laughs) was a very fat man, and Ehud sneaks into the presence of the king, past palace security, past the guard. He takes a double-edged dagger, and the Bible says he stabbed Eglon. And when the sword went in, the dirt came out. That's what the Bible says. Not rated G, but definitely entertaining. The sword goes in, the dirt comes out. That's what the Bible says. Now watch. The Bible tells us in Judges that Ehud's sword was a double-edged dagger. The book of Hebrews says the word of God is like a double-edged sword. Ephesians said the sword of the spirit is the word of God. Revelation in the apocalyptic literature and poetry of John has a sword coming out of Jesus' mouth. The sword represents the word, the double-edged dagger. And that's what happens when the double-edged dagger, the word comes into our life, the dirt falls out of our life. 
That's why we're going heavy into scripture today. When the sword comes in, the dirt goes out. Jesus said, you are clean by the word that I've spoken to you. When we receive the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the dirt falls out of our life and it cleans us. It's a powerful thing. It never returns unto the Lord void. The book of Isaiah says, no weapon formed against it shall ever prosper. So watch this. Ehud, then the Bible says, after he stabbed Eglon, could not retrieve his sword because the sword disappeared in the fat. He literally was like trying to swim through the blubber and to fish out from the cellulite his dagger, but the fat spilled over the sword, so he left it in Eglon's belly, snuck out of the presence of the king, then killed 10,000 lusty men of Moab and won this great military victory for the Israelites, oppressing them from the... uh, pardon me, delivering them from the oppression that the Moabites had exacted upon them for 18 years. But here's what's fascinating about that story. Ehud, the Bible says, was left-handed. That's how he was able to sneak into the presence of a king with a double-edged dagger. Historicity tells us that back then, palace security would usually only frisk the left hip of a visitor. Why? Because most men were right-handed. And if you're right-handed, how do you draw your sword? From your left hip across your body. But because Ehud was a southpaw, where would his sword be? On his right hip. Which was why he was able to sneak into the king's presence without TSA noticing and without the metal detector ringing. So God did a curse reverse. His greatest weakness became his greatest strength. The fact that he was a southpaw made him a hero and his shame became his glory. That's what God does. He can take our greatest weaknesses and turn them into our greatest strengths. That's how good our God is. He not only forgives our weaknesses, he not only covers our shame, but he perfects his strength in our weaknesses and he actually makes glory out of our shame. Let's go. He's so gracious. He's so good. He's so loving. So I want you to, listen, own your oddness. (laughs) Own your oddness. That thing makes the the very um, weakness, the very shame that you're going through is the very thing that makes you unique and that God can use to do powerful deeds of daring in in your generation. So let's take a look at Luke chapter 9, verse 49, as we continue to talk about changing the way that we think, even about our weaknesses, in prioritizing the kingdom of God in our lives. Luke 9, uh, 49 through 62 is the text that I've been asked to uh, cover and speak out of. So if you have your Bible, you can uh, follow along. If not, you can just listen. But we're told in Luke 9, 49, now John answered and said, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we forbade him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not forbid him. For he who is not against us is on our side. Now it came to pass when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem and sent messengers before his face. And as they went, they entered a village of the Samaritans to prepare for him. But they did not receive him because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John saw this, they said, Lord, Do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of? For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Verse 57. 
Now it happened as they journeyed on the road that someone said to him, Lord, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Then he said to another, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and preach the kingdom of God. And another also said, Lord, I will follow you, but let me first go and bid them farewell who are at my house. But Jesus said to him, no one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we see in this text that Jesus is really prioritizing and emphasizing the kingdom of God. First, he had to correct a couple of his disciples on their notion of what the kingdom of God was. They thought that Jesus, like Caesar, was going to conquer the earth by bathing the world in the blood of his enemies. When really Jesus was going to overcome the world by bathing his enemies in the world with his own blood. Not destroying his enemies, but laying down his life for them. That's why Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. James and John, they were called the sons of Boanerges, which literally means the sons of thunder. And they wanted to call down lightning as the sons of thunder from heaven, Dragon Ball Z fireballs from heaven, to torch a Samaritan village for not giving them hospitality. And Jesus said, you don't know what spirit you're of. I didn't come to judgmentally wipe out people. I came to lovingly save them. I didn't come to torch people. I came to touch people. Another time we're told in this text, they saw some guys doing a great healing work. And they said, oh, we told them to stop because they're not part of our group. And Jesus said, if they're not against us, they're for us. Let them alone. Then, in this last part of the text, we're told Jesus speaks to three people. One guy says, Lord, I'm going to follow you, but first let me say goodbye to my family. Jesus says, prioritize the kingdom. If you set your hand to the plow, you can't look back. That's the only way you're fit for my kingdom. Another guy says, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You go preach the kingdom of God. That's your priority. That's what you need to think about. Repent, the kingdom is at hand. Metanoia, change the way you think. The kingdom of God is among you and within you. Another guy uh, is told, you know, by Jesus, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. When the man said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Now here's the interesting thing. Jesus, he first has to correct their notion about the very nature of, of who the king of this empire of hope just so happens to be. Jesus is in effect teaching what John the Apostle, who was corrected in this text as the son of thunder who wanted to call down lightning on a Samaritan village. Later, John would write in 1 John 4, verse 8 and 16, that God is love, and he learned this lesson in the text before us. You see, neuroscience has now shown us that one of the chief things religion does for people, according to brain scans, is it creates in them identity real estate. In other words, people who have a relationship with God have a stronger sense of who they are, according to brain scans. But also, you image whatever deity you worship. So what you think about God, neurologically speaking, is the most important thing about you. Watch this. Brain scans have now shown us That if you pray to a God who you believe is angry, ticked off, and wants to torch people, brain scans have shown us that you have high activity in your amygdala, which is the part of your brain that's responsible for stress, fear, anxiety, and high blood pressure. 
So if you believe God is angry and ticked off, and that's who you pray to and you're afraid of him, uh, neuroscience says you have high activity in your amygdala, which is responsible for anxiety, stress, high blood pressure, and fear. And that's the kind of lifestyle you'll lead. If, however, you pray to a God who is loving, neuroscience tells us this is one of the top three best things for your brain, along with reading and exercise. Praying actually fires up your frontal lobe into its highest intellectual capacity and state. So if you deliberately and intentionally talk to a God who is loving, you will boost your brain intelligence. And not only that, but you will have high activity when you pray to a God who is loving in your prefrontal cortex, which is the part of your brain responsible for concentration and focus. So do you ever feel like the clutter is gone, the rubbish is removed, the attic is clean, the attic is clean and you have a better sense of prioritizing after you pray? That's because there's high activity in your prefrontal cortex when you deliberately talk to a God you believe is love. Furthermore, when you talk to a God who is caring, who you believe is compassionate, you will have high activity in your anterior cingulate cortex, which is the part of your brain responsible for empathy and compassion. When you pray, do you find that it's easier to remove people from your hit list when you put them on your prayer list? When you say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, that's because brain research is, this is not like Christian brain science. This is just secular neuroscience. It's telling us that when you pray to a God who is loving, you have high activity in your interior cingulate cortex, which creates greater compassion and empathy. This is big stuff. So change the way you think. God is love and the kingdom is among you. This has to be your priority. Now watch this. This gets insane. When the guy says in our text, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And then in the next two situations where he talks to those men making excuses for why they couldn't prioritize following Jesus, he talks about the kingdom of God. Now, in each of these three instances, he is prioritizing the kingdom of God. Here's how he's doing it in the first case. When he said foxes have holes and birds have nests, this had incredible political undertones and overtones. Here's the subtext. Watch this. One time, Herod, the great, as you know, tried to kill Jesus because Jesus was called the king of the Jews. Remember when Jesus was tried for treason and put on the executioner's block by the Romans, colluding with the 6,000 Pharisees? Watch this. There was a sign above the executioner's block that was his effective indictment, and it said, Jesus, king of the Jews. But then it was written in three different languages. Jesus, king of the Jews in Greek, Latin and Hebrew. Greek, because that was the language of intellect, the philosophers, Aristotle, Socrates, Plato, Alexander. Hebrew, because that was the language of the Old Testament, Judaism. Latin, because that was the language of Rome, empire, politics. So when it said Jesus, king of the Jews, it was saying he is the king of philosophy, he is the king of religion, he is the king of politics, hashtag no big deal, hashtag low-key world domination. <laughs> so here's Jesus who's called the king of the Jews. Napoleon Bonaparte himself said, and I quote, I have known men and Jesus Christ is no mere man. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself have all founded empires, but upon what did we rest? The creation of our genius upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him, end quote. 
Jesus was the king of the kings. That was a Persian phrase that he adopted for himself, hijacked, king of the Jews. Herod doesn't like this because Herod was also called the king of the Jews, which is why he tried to kill Jesus as a baby, wiping out those kids under the age of two. Jesus, as a baby, then flees to Egypt, grows up in Israel, passes through baptismal waters to wander in a wilderness for 40 days, Matthew tells us, just as Israel, as a baby nation, was taken to Egypt, passed through water, the Red Sea, to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Matthew was retelling Israel's story through Jesus. Jesus grows up. Herod the Great's predecessor, Herod Antipas, also tried to kill Jesus. Herod the Great's very famous because of the Christmas story as the villain. Herod Antipas, however, there's a story about him trying to kill Jesus too, when he was an adult. See, Jesus was once approached by the Pharisees and watch this. Herod Antipas, the Pharisee said, is trying to kill you, Jesus. And Jesus said, go tell that fox. (laughs) Go tell that fox that I will continue preaching, healing and casting out demons. And on the third day, I will accomplish my goal. Now to call somebody a fox in the ancient world was the biggest slam. You were calling them a poser, an imposter, and a pretender. If you called someone a lion, like Jesus, the lion of the tribe of Judah, you were lionizing and esteeming their greatness. Aslan's on the move further up, further in, up, and to the right. But to call somebody a fox meant they were a poser or a pretender. So Jesus was saying, Herod is a pretender to the throne. And calling somebody a fox was the biggest slam in the ancient world, which is why I trash talk in basketball, because I just say, what would Jesus do? (laughs) No, I'm joking. But Jesus did call him a fox, biggest slam in the ancient world. Now, the Herodian kings, Herod the Great, Antipas, they were represented by the fox. The Roman eagle was what represented uh, the empire of Caesar. So the national symbol for the Roman empire was the eagle. Watch. So when Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, he was speaking of Caesar and Herod. He was saying their kingdom is about avaricious greed and accumulation of wealth through violence. But my kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom, Paul said, according to the scriptures, Jesus' kingdom is righteousness, number one. Just like finding Nemo, the surfer turtle. Righteous! Righteous! Revelation says the four and twenty elders bow before the throne and they say, Righteous! And draw your judgments. The kingdom of God is peace. Paul said, let the peace of God rule your hearts. The Greek word is umpire. So you can know what decision to make, which person to date, which college to attend, which career path to embark on, which restaurant to eat after church by the peace that rules your heart. The word is umpire in Greek. In other words, you know which decision to make based on peace. The peace will either say safe, that's a safe decision to make, or if you lack peace, God's calling you out on the carpet. Let the peace of God rule your heart. The word is literally umpire in Greek. You can know which decision to make, whether you're safe or God's calling you out based on whether you have peace or not. And thirdly, he said it's joy, joy, joy in the Holy Ghost. Joy in the Holy Ghost. That's how Paul defined the kingdom in Romans. Joy in the Holy Ghost. The average kid laughs 200 to 400 times every day. The average adult laughs 13 to 17 times every day. Now, I don't have as many IQ points as smart people. (laughs) I have as many IQ points as the Cleveland Browns put on the scoreboard. I don't have a thermometer, as many degrees as a thermometer. I don't have an alphabet after my name, but I do know, I do know, I do know 
that if kids are laughing 400 times every day and we're laughing 13 times every day, the older we're getting, the less joy we're having. So maybe Jesus was onto something when he said, if you want to enter my kingdom, you must become as a little child. That's what Paul said the kingdom is. Righteousness, peace, joy in the Holy Ghost. Jesus said, my kingdom is different than Caesar and Herod. It's not about the accumulation of wealth through violence. It's about righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost on earth as it is in heaven. Peter Pan demonium vibes. Would you stand with me? That's what you're to prioritize the kingdom of God. Now, as I close, this is where it gets really insane. So don't miss this. Watch this. Remember how Herod was trying to kill Jesus? Luke chapter 8, verse 1 through 3, tell us that as Jesus went preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, watch this, don't miss this, one of his followers was named Joanna, who was the wife of Chuzza, and Chuzza was Herod's steward. Herod Antipas was the Bill Gates of the ancient world, that fox the wealthiest man in all of Israel, history tells us. He had as his right-hand guy, the manager over his familial estate, his steward, a guy named Chuzza. Now, if you're Bill Gates' right-hand guy, you're going to get wealthy, siphoning off your salary from his payroll. So Chuzza becomes super wealthy because he's Herod's right-hand guy. Chuzza then marries Joanna, Luke 8, verse 3 tells us, as Jesus is preaching the glad tidings of the kingdom. Chuzza marries Joanna, And verse 3 of Luke 8 tells us that Joanna provides for Jesus out of her substance, which means she is actually funding Jesus' ministry. (laughs) Joanna is funding Jesus' ministry because she's the wife of the wealthy Chuzza, and Chuzza gets wealthy because he's Herod's steward, so Herod is paying Chuzza a salary. So that means because Herod is paying Chuzza and Chuzza provides for Joanna and Joanna, Luke 8, 3, tells us is funding Jesus' ministry. That means Herod is indirectly funding the very Jesus ministry he was trying to stamp out. Foxes have holes, birds have nests, but my kingdom is so much better than you could ever dream. Maybe you have enemies in your life today who are taking away your joy your peace, your belief in the justice and righteousness of God. Let justice flow down like a river, Amos said. Let me encourage you today that what the enemy means for evil, the Lord means for good. Your weakness is your greatest strength. Your shame is your glory. The very people you think are hurting you are actually helping you advance the kingdom in this generation as you prioritize that in your thinking. Your haters are your motivators. (laughs) Tigers don't lose sleep over the opinion of sheep. God doesn't take you deeper to drown you. He just knows your enemies can't swim. Ask the Egyptian charioteers. And Psalm says, 114, he puts his enemies under your feet, which means if you want to say something to your enemy, you better write it on your sneakers because he's under your feet. (laughs) So you just love your enemies. You don't have to hate your enemies because what your enemies mean for evil, Genesis 50 says, the Lord uses for the good. So we know that wrong will be worsted. We know that right will triumph. We know we're baffled to fight better. We know we sleep to wake. We fall to rise. We might have hell around us, but we have the kingdom of heaven inside us because we are the people who have gone through hell carrying buckets of water for those still consumed by the fire. So we are going to advance the empire of hope and the kingdom of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost on earth as it is in heaven. That's our priority. And we're going to be the game changers, the world shapers, the risk takers, the history makers the sun stoppers, the storm stillers, the wave walkers, and the giant killers 
for the kingdom of God. Can I get an amen? <laughs> amen. Thank you so much, guys. Love you. We'll see you next time. Thank Thanks, you. Ben. All right. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thank you, Ben. What a blessing. Hey, I want to tell you about something awesome that's coming up. Okay, so on August 18th, we have an event that we call Kaboom. Okay, and maybe you've come in the past, maybe you haven't, but it is a celebration of the new year of ministry. Okay, and it is, it is awesome if you've never seen it. Out over the pond, there will be Razi fireworks. So, so the same fireworks that are over the river, they're going to be over our, our little pond back there. Um, we'll have an amazing ice cream bar and buffet. Um, our East Station worship team will perform. Um, and it's a great chance for you to come and meet other folks from Horizon. It's also a great chance to maybe bring a neighbor uh, to something that's not real threatening, to just come and see some amazing fireworks. Um, if you're interested in that, we have tickets in the atrium at the registration desk. They are complimentary, and you'll want to bring a, f- a uh, folding chair and maybe a blanket to sit on that night. So have a great day. Hope you have a great weekend. Thank you.